Hi, I'm Amy Goodman. This month, Democracy Now! turns 27. Since our very first broadcast in 1996, Democracy Now! has been committed to fearless, independent journalism. At this critical moment, when press freedom is under attack, our reporting is more important than ever. To celebrate our 27th anniversary, please donate today at democracynow.org. We're counting on you. Thank you so much. This is Democracy Now! This weekend, the New York Times published a stunning expose shining light on the scores of migrant children currently working on our farms, our factories, and some of the most dangerous sites in our country. Alone and exploited. That's the major New York Times investigation revealing migrant children as young as 12 years old working for major brands like Ben & Jerry's, Fruit of the Loom, Ford, General Motors, J. Crew, Walmart, Whole Foods, and Target. In a rapid response, the Biden administration's vowed to crack down on migrant child labor. We'll speak with Hannah Dreyer, the Pulitzer Prize-winning reporter who traveled to Alabama, Florida, Georgia, Michigan, Minnesota, South Dakota, and Virginia for the story and spoke to more than 100 migrant child workers in 20 states. Then we look at how Brazil's new president, Luis Inácio Lula da Silva, could play a major role in peace talks to end the war in Ukraine. My suggestion is that we form a group of countries that will sit at the table with Ukraine and Russia to try to find peace, to try to stop the war. Brazil will make an effort. We'll go to the Brazilian capital to speak with Celso Amorim, Lula's foreign affairs advisor. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen made a surprise visit to the Ukrainian capital of Kyiv Monday, announcing the transfer of $1.25 billion in new economic aid to Ukraine. As we mark one year since the beginning of this full-scale invasion, the message I bring you from President Biden is simple. America will stand with Ukraine for as long as it takes. During her trip, Yellen also warned China it would face severe consequences if it provides material support to Russia in violation of U.S.-backed sanctions. On Monday, China criticized the United States for its role in the Ukraine war. A spokesperson for China's foreign ministry said, quote, while the United States has intensified its efforts to send weapons to one of the conflicting parties, resulting in endless wars, a new end in sight for peace, it has frequently spread false information about China's supply of weapons to Russia, unquote. Last week, China released a 12-point peace plan to end the war in Ukraine. In related news, the president of Belarus, Alexander Lukashenko, has arrived in China for a three-day state visit, with U.S. Secretary of State Tony Blinken visiting Kazakhstan for meetings with with top diplomats from Central Asian nations. In Turkey, at least one person died Monday when another earthquake shook 
Turkey's southeast region. Twenty-nine buildings collapsed in the tremor, which came three weeks after a devastating pair of quakes that killed over 50,000 people in Turkey and Syria. Over the weekend, the head of the World Food Program, Michael Beasley, described the situation in southern Turkey as apocalyptic. He said, quote, the scale of devastation here is truly incomprehensible, unquote. The Israeli human rights group Salem has accused Benjamin Netanyahu's government of backing a pogrom in the West Bank town of Huara. On Sunday night, Jewish settlers attacked the town, burning cars and homes and killing Sameh Akhtash, a Palestinian man who'd recently returned from Turkey, where he volunteered to help after the earthquake. But Salem said, quote, the Jewish supremacist regime carried out a pogrom in the villages around Nablus yesterday. This isn't loss of control. This is exactly what Israeli control looks like. The settlers carry out the attack. The military secures it. The politicians back it. It's a synergy, Betsalem said. The Israeli publication 972 magazine reports the Israeli military allowed the rampaging settlers to walk into Hawara, quote, on foot, while preventing journalists, medics and Palestinian aid workers from doing the same, unquote. According to The Washington Post, Israel has not yet arrested any settlers who took part in the violence. This is Nabil Abu Rudina, a spokesperson for the Palestinian president Mahmoud Abbas. Undoubtedly, this is a war against the Palestinian people, an inclusive war that is backed by the Israeli government. These settlers' attacks are part of the policy of the government, in spite that some try to deny it. These crimes will not pass without penalty, and Israelis shall be held responsible for all that happens, and so does the military. And the American administration, who also backs this government, should stop all this violence and all these crimes. The Palestinian people shall not be defeated or back out, and we will chase after them in all the international platforms. The settler attack in Huara came hours after a Palestinian gunman shot dead two Israeli brothers from a nearby settlement. That that shooting came four days after Israeli forces killed 11 Palestinians and injured 500 in a rare daytime raid of Nablus. In the latest violence in the West Bank, an Israeli-American named Ilan Ganelis was shot dead Monday while driving near Jericho. The Biden administration has vowed to crack down on the exploitation of migrant children working inside the United States. This comes just days after The New York Times published a shocking expose revealing how migrant children are working in gruesome and dangerous conditions at factories owned by many major brands, including Fruit of the Loom, Ford, General Motors, J. Crew, Walmart, Whole Foods, Target and Ben and Jerry's. We'll speak to The New York Times reporter who broke the story after headlines. The Biden administration's announced manufacturers seeking federal subsidies to make computer chips will need to provide affordable child care for their workers. White House Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre outlined part of the plan Monday. The need for child care to boost our workforce in, is undeniable. Part of the solution to that is that the Commerce Department is going to require companies seeking substantial CHIPS funding to submit a robust child care plan that reflects the needs of their workers, communities where they plan to build. 
Advocates for student debt relief are rallying outside the Supreme Court today as justices hear arguments in a case that could determine whether the Biden administration can proceed with a plan to eliminate up to $20,000 in federal student loan debt for many borrowers. President Biden announced the plan in August, but it's been held up over legal challenges. In other Supreme Court news, justices agreed Monday to hear a case that could decide the fate of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, which was created by President Obama after the financial crisis. Rupert Murdoch, the owner of Fox News, has admitted under oath that many hosts on his network, quote, endorsed Donald Trump's false claims about the 2020 election. Murdoch also admitted it was wrong for Fox to keep interviewing pro-Trump conspiracy theorist Mike Lindell, the CEO of MyPillow. But Murdoch suggested it was done for financial, not political reasons. Murdoch said, quote, it's not red or blue, it's green. Murdoch made the remarks in a deposition as part of a $1.6 billion defamation lawsuit filed by Dominion Voting Systems against Fox. In a new court filing, Dominion also revealed Murdoch had given Trump's son-in-law, Jared Kushner, confidential information about Biden's campaign ads, along with debate strategy during the campaign. A warning, this next headline includes video that may be disturbing. Protesters gathered in Knoxville, Tennessee on Monday to demand justice for Lisa Edwards, a 60-year-old woman who died after suffering a stroke in the back of a Knoxville police patrol car. Edwards was arrested February 5th on trespassing charges after she refused to leave a local hospital following her discharge. At the time of her arrest, she was still wearing her hospital gown. Police body cam video shows she repeatedly told officers she needed medical care, saying, I'm going to have a stroke and I can't breathe. Oh, my God. You've been medically cleared, so let's get in. My foot's wrong. I can't. You're going to break me. Yes, ma'am. You're going to have to get in. My ankle. clear, ma'am. This is not going to work. So we need you to help us. Right. You need to get in there. At another point, Lisa Edwards can be heard telling the Knoxville police officers, quote, you guys are going to let me die. One officer can be heard dismissing her warning, saying, quote, it's all an act. Instead of bringing her back inside, the hospital officers placed her in the back of a patrol car where she became unresponsive. Eventually, she was brought back to the same hospital, Fort Sanders Regional Medical Center. She was then placed on life support and died the following day. In an interview on WVLT in Knoxville, her son decried the police treatment of his mother. I can't even wrap my head around it. I just don't see how somebody could treat someone like that. Like they, they treat her like she's trash. Mexican soldiers shot dead five unarmed men on Sunday in the town of Nuevo Laredo, across the border from Laredo, Texas, sparking angry protests. The men were reportedly returning home from a nightclub. The Nuevo Laredo Human Rights Committee said soldiers fired at least 20 shots at the men who were in a pickup truck. A sixth person in the truck was injured. Soldiers later fired shots to disperse local residents who began protesting at the scene of the shooting. 
In Ecuador, Eduardo Mendua, an Ayacofan indigenous leader who fought against oil extraction in the Amazon rainforest, was assassinated Sunday. He was a member of the Confederation of Indigenous Nationalities of Ecuador. The group said Mendua was shot 12 times by two armed men wearing hoods while he was at his home garden in the town of Dereno. Mandua's murder is believed to be linked to the community's fight to block Ecuador's state-owned oil company, PetroEcuador, from expanding its drilling in the region of Sucumbios. Indigenous communities in the Ecuadorian Amazon have for decades dealt with the horrific health and environmental impacts of oil production. Over a decade ago, they won a lawsuit against Chevron over the spilling of billions of gallons of crude oil, which contaminated the water and soil and caused cancer rates among locals to skyrocket. About 15 climate activists chained themselves to the French finance ministry in Paris Monday in a protest demanding debt cancellation for countries in the global south and for wealthy, polluting nations to pay a climate debt. The activists, who wore red jumpsuits and masks, splattered fake blood on the walls of the French ministry. We are chained up just like the countries which are most affected by global warming and are tied down by the debt they have to reimburse, which keeps them from putting money where they need it to protect themselves. Meanwhile, in Norway, dozens of indigenous and climate activists chained themselves to the doors of Norway's energy ministry Monday to protest the placement of wind turbines on land traditionally used by the indigenous Sami reindeer herders. The protests continued today when activists blocked access to Norway's finance ministry. This is Sami musician and activist Ella Marie Haeta Isaken. We are here to protest against the ongoing human rights violations, against Fosen, where 151 wind turbines are on the land illegally. That's according to a high court decision. But they are there anyway, so we demand that they should be taken down and that indigenous people's rights should be respected. In Britain, Prime Minister Rishi Sunak has reached a deal with the European Union on post-Brexit trade rules for Northern Ireland. Sunak said the deal will remove, quote, any sense of border in the Irish Sea, unquote. Speaking in Belfast, Sinn Féin Vice President Michelle O'Neill welcomed the deal. Yeah. What I've um, said consistently throughout the whole of the Brexit debate is that the people here have been left in limbo, they've left with uncertainty. I'm hoping that today, because we're at the end of the negotiation, the deal is now done, I'm hoping that today all energy and efforts focus at home here to um, making politics work and actually getting around the executive table. The U.S. Marshals Service has launched a new initiative to investigate missing and murdered indigenous persons. According to the Bureau of Indian Affairs, there are more than 4,200 unsolved cases of missing Native Americans. Under a new pilot program, the U.S. Marshals Service will team up with the Yurok tribe in Northern California to help address the crisis. And this week marks 50 years since the start of the American Indian Movement's 71-day occupation of the village of Wounded Knee on the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation. The occupation helped draw international attention to the plight of indigenous people within the borders of the United States. The U.S. government responded to the occupation with a full military siege that included armored personnel carriers, F-4 Phantom Jets, U.S. Marshals, FBI, state and local law enforcement. During the occupation, two Sioux men were shot dead by federal agents and a black Black civil rights activist Ray Robinson went missing. The FBI confirmed in 2014 he'd been killed during the standoff. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. When we come back, alone and exploited, we speak with the Pulitzer Prize-winning New York Times reporter who 
investigated the migrant children as young as 12 years old working for major brands like Ben and Jerry's, Food of Loom, Ford, General Motors, J. Crew, Walmart, Whole Foods, and Target. Stay with us. The question is student debt, then the answer is cancel. A joke could do it with the movement of a pen or a pencil. It's just a fancy flick of the hand, and then all of it vanishes. And then all my homies hoping to be parents get a fair chance. I know y'all hear us in Hyderabad, screaming, let us catch our breath a bit. So if the question is, could you shred the records of indebtedness, then the answer is just as simple as I said it is. Second question, should I get the pet? We can scatter you and smother you in costs that are uncovered by insurance when your hip is reconstructed. Student loans for study. In the subject with substance, the ankle monitor mandated for being the plugger and it's in the start to sputter. Plating you bury you under the interest, wasting your life indentured. Eight to five and then some, just to pad our pockets with the payments we invented. Breaking your resistance isn't an accident, it's exactly as it's intended. Mariah Parker, a.k.a. Lingua Franca's The Whole Bank. For our viewers, we just premiered a new music video for the song shared with us by the Debt Collective as advocates for student debt relief rally outside the Supreme Court today during oral arguments challenging Biden's student loan cancellation pro plan. And this is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman in New York, joined by Democracy Now! co-host Juan Gonzalez in Chicago, where it's a Election Day. Hi, Juan. Uh, hi, Amy, and welcome to all of our listeners and viewers across the country and around the world. We begin today's show looking at a shocking investigation by The New York Times exposing the forced labor of migrant children as young as 12 at factories across the United States. Over 100 unaccompanied migrant children, mostly from Central America, describe grueling and often dangerous working conditions, including having to use heavy machinery, being subjected to long hours and late night shifts at facilities that manufacture products for major brands and retailers such as Hearthside Food Solutions, the makers of Cheerios, Fruit of the Loom, Whole Foods, Target, Walmart, J. Crew, Frito-Lay, and Ben & Jerry's. Others were forced to work as cleaning staff at hotels, at slaughterhouses, construction sites, car factories owned by General Motors and Ford in serious violation of child labor laws. At least a dozen migrant child workers have been killed on the job since 2017, according to The New York Times. The disturbing revelations prompted the Biden administration to announce Monday a wide initiative to crack down on the labor exploitation of migrant children. White House Press Secretary Corinne Jean-Pierre called the New York Times investigation heartbreaking. At the president's direction, the Department of Labor and the Department of Health and Human Services announced new actions to crack down on child labor violations and ensure that sponsors of unaccompanied migrant children are vigorously, rigorously vetted. Child abuse, uh, child, child labor is abuse, uh, and it is unacceptable. 
Again, it is unacceptable. This administration has long been combating a surge in child <laughs> exploitation, and today the Department of Labor and HHS announced that they will create a new interagency task force to combat child exploitation. They will also increase scrutiny of companies that do that do business with employers who violate child labor laws, mandate follow-up calls for unaccompanied migrant children who report safety concerns to the HHS hotline, and the audit the sponsor vetting process for unaccompanied migrant children over the next four weeks. The Labor Department has already launched an investigation into Hearthside Food Solutions, which produces and packages food for other major companies, like General Mills, Frito-Lay and Quaker Oats. Democracy Now! reached out to Hearthside Food Solutions to invite a company spokesperson to join us on the program. They declined the request, but sent us a statement to read on air. The statement reads, in part, we take the allegations in the article seriously, have committed to these immediate next steps. We've engaged in a renowned global advisory firm, an independent law firm, to conduct an independent review of Hearthside's employment practices, third-party employee engagements, planned safety protocols, and our standards of business conduct. Following the view, we're committed to enhancing our policies and practices in line with our advisors' recommendations, they said. For more, we're joined by two guests. Hannah Dreyer is the Pulitzer Prize-winning reporter at The New York Times, whose major investigation published Sunday on the front page is headlined, Alone and Exploited, Migrant Children Work Brutal Jobs Across the U.S. Her follow-up piece published Monday headlined, Biden Administration Plans Crackdown on Migrant Child Labor. She's joining us from here in New York. Um, you traveled to Alabama, Florida, Georgia, Michigan, Minnesota, South Dakota, and Virginia for the story, speaking to more than 100 migrant child workers in 20 states. Hannah, can you lay out the scope of this investigation, what you found, and were you shocked by the speed of the Biden administration's response and your evaluation of what that is? Thank you so much for having me, Amy. I mean, when I started this reporting, I thought that we might find that some kids were working agricultural jobs, maybe dishwasher jobs. I never anticipated that we would find this scope of children working these really industrial, adult, dangerous jobs in all 50 states. Um, so really what I discovered is, I think, a child labor scandal in this country. We have more and more kids coming over without their parents, and they're being released to situations where they have to pay their own rent, provide their own living expenses. They're under huge pressure to send money back home, and they're ending up in some of the most brutal jobs in this country. So I talked to kids outside of slaughterhouses when they were getting off their shifts at 7 in the morning. I talked to kids who were working as roofers at the top of buildings, um, kids who had gotten seriously injured. Like you say, we found many examples of kids who had died on these jobs. And it's in the supply chain of, you know, so many corporations. At the end of this reporting, I just felt like it was inescapable. Like so many of the things that I personally consume, like Cheerios, have this labor somewhere in the supply chain. And yeah, I mean, the response was overwhelming. We were told that the Biden administration worked over the weekend and Biden approved these changes like on Sunday afternoon, a day after the story ran. It's really gratifying. Um, the people who I'm talking to believe that there's still a lot to be done, but some of these changes really do seem like they will start to address this problem. 
And Hannah, in your investigation, how uh, recent is this development? In other words, there was enormous pressure following the the end of the Trump administration to remove un- uh, unaccompanied minors from detention facilities. Uh, is this a recent phenomena or did this was this build has been, this been building for years now? This is something that I think has been building for maybe the past 10 years. And part of it has to do with the changing nature of the children who are crossing the border. Ten years ago, there were far fewer children, maybe 6,000 children a year. Now we're seeing 150,000 a year. And those children were often coming to reunite with their parents. So they would cross the border and be released to a parent who often would take care of them. Often that parent would have paid to have them brought up. And now what we're seeing is it's much more common for parents to be sending these children, and the children are under pressure to send back remittances. So the dynamic of who's coming has changed. And we've also seen a labor shortage. I've seen a couple dynamics that have sort of created a perfect storm for this phenomenon to really explode since 2021. And what the people who work with these kids out in the field are telling us is that they've seen this huge shift in the last three years. Middle schools, where every eighth grader in the last three years has started working, uh, federal investigators who used to focus on sex crimes and are now instead focusing on pulling 12 and 13-year-olds out of factory jobs. Um, it's been sort of a slow shift. And then in the last two or three years, this really rapid change. And, and your story indicates that uh, HHS Secretary Javier Becerra, Becerra did put enormous pressure uh, on, uh, uh, on other government agencies as well as his own agency to move the uh, unaccompanied minors out of the detention facilities. How do you, how do you assess uh, the role of uh, Secretary Becerra? You know, a lot of advocates, a lot of people in the immigration world were really excited about Becerra and about the change that they thought might happen at HHS after the Biden administration took over. But what happened was there was this huge crunch at the border where all of a sudden children were sort of getting piled up in jails that are run by Customs and Border Protection because there wasn't enough capacity in the child welfare organization that's supposed to take care of these children Um, That's Health and Human Services. So there was suddenly all of this media attention to kids sleeping on the floor, sleeping under those silver space blankets. And what people inside HHS say is that Becerra started putting immense pressure on them to discharge these kids more quickly. So every day would start with a call, and the call would be, how many kids have been discharged from care today? How many kids are still there? And what people who work at all levels of that agency say is that created a situation where kids were being pushed out too quickly to people who weren't vetted. And a lot of people inside the agency told me, you know, he would always say, why can't we run this like an assembly line? We need to be more efficient. Henry Ford would never have gotten rich if he had run his assembly lines like this. And I was very skeptical. I mean, that's a really intense thing to say when you're talking about the most vulnerable children in this country. Um, But somebody eventually leaked us a a video of him sort of berating staff and saying that on tape. So I think he himself is probably under a lot of pressure, but there's a lot of disappointment um, within the agency and, and among immigration advocates about how that's been handled. 
Hannah, I'd like to ask you about the children. If you could tell us some of their stories, that's really the heart of your story. As you talk about Christian, um, who works in a construction job instead of going to school, 14 years old. Carolina, who packages Cheerios at night in a factory. Talk about each of them and also how you found them. How difficult was it for you to find them? I mean, these kids were not hard to find, and I think that's part of what you're seeing with these Department of Labor reforms. Inspectors just have not been looking for them in a proactive way. I came to—I went to different cities and towns, and usually the next day, I already was speaking to children who were working these illegal, exploitative jobs. I talked to Christian in southern Florida. He was living in a house full of other unaccompanied minors, other kids who'd come across the border without their parents— all of them were working full-time. None of them had gone to school. Christian had come when he was 12, two years ago, and immediately, the next day, started working full-time in construction. He told me that he doesn't know how to read, and he would like to learn English, he would like to learn how to read, but he can't go to school because he has a debt to pay off, he has to pay rent. And I went to a construction site and talked to him as he was putting the roof on a building, and he told me he had already fallen twice that year. He was working with power tools. He was just sort of balancing precariously on the edge as he was trying to um, bend some rebar. And, I mean, he's a child. It's not what he wants to be doing. But he was released to this situation, and there's just sort of no support there for him to, to get out of it. And in Michigan, I talked to a lot of children who were working in a factory packaging Cheerios, um, they also packaged Lucky Charms and Cheetos. And these were kids who were in school. I met them at school. And some of the kids I met at school told me, oh, yeah, we have, to, we have to leave early now because we have to go to our factory job. And I was just shocked. But I went to this factory, and sure enough, there they were walking out um, after the shift. And this is a place where you're working with really industrial machinery. The machines have sliced off people's fingers. One woman who was doing this kind of work was pulled in by a hairnet and her scalp was ripped open. I mean, it's a serious adult kind of place to work. And these kids are balancing it with, you know, seven days of school as well. So they're exhausted. And tell us about Neri Katsal from Guatemala, um, how they met their sponsor. Again, these children are here legally. And then talk about the children who have died. I mean, I think that's such an important point. These are not undocumented children. They're not children who snuck in and nobody ever found out about them, and now they're sort of living a subterranean life. These are children who turned themselves in at the border, usually asked for asylum, and were released to live with somebody who the government thought would protect them. The government can't release them unless they're sure that it's a trustworthy adult who is taking these kids on. And in some cases, they're being released to complete strangers. So in Neri's case, he met a man on Facebook when he was 13. The man said that if he wanted to come to the U.S., he would help him. He would let him go to school. And instead, Neri shows up. The man picks him up from the airport and immediately hands him a list of debts that this kid now has. So he's charging him thousands of dollars for his journey to this country. He charged him for filling out the paperwork that he had to send to the government in order to get him released. He charged him $45 for the dinner of tacos that they had that night. And then he told Neri that he had to go find his own place to live, find a job, and start paying back this debt. 
And, you know, Neri doesn't speak any English. He's never worked. He was in school when he was in Central America. And we've seen the text messages between him and this man. The man starts threatening him and saying, you don't matter to me. I'm going to mess you up. He threatened Neri's family. And these kids are just on their own in these situations which, with, you know, very little resources um, and very few ways out. You mentioned that federal inspectors just generally are not looking for these kinds of violations. But I'm sure that several of these workplaces that you went to were unionized to one degree or another. Is there any sense on your part that the the organized labor movement was that leaders in some of these places were aware of this? Because they could certainly complain and therefore trigger some kind of inspection. So many of these children are coming in through staffing agencies. I had initially thought that the unions would be a really important resource in this reporting. And when I went to them, they told me, no, there's no children here. You know, we have these other sort of workplace issues. But then in some cases, I would go back to the same workplace and see children on the night shift. And I think part of what's going on here is there's sort of two labor streams. There are the official employees, and those are people who have to provide government IDs. There's a lot more regulation and protection. And then there are these kids who come in through the staffing agencies. And that's like a total free-for-all, where the staffing agencies, um, people who work at the staffing agencies have told us that they know they're sending children to work at these factories. People who sent children to work packaging Cheerios say they knowingly did this and that the factory knowingly accepted these kids. But because there's sort of this one layer of remove, the factories don't get in trouble. It's the staffing agencies that get in trouble when there's a crackdown. And the children who've died, Hannah? I mean, child labor laws exist for a reason. They're not just there because kids should go to school and they should get enough sleep. They're really there because this work is dangerous. Kids are much more likely to get injured on the job, and they're supposed to protect kids' like physical safety. So what we found talking to these kids who are working jobs that they're not supposed to be in, that are illegal for children, is that the rate of injury is extremely high. And in some cases, children have died days after being released to a sponsor. In one case in Alabama, a 15-year-old fell 50 feet off of a warehouse where he was helping replace a roof. It was his first day on the job. He had been released to his brother. Um, Here in Brooklyn, where I live, a 14-year-old was killed on his bike. He was a food delivery worker, and he was living in a house full of strangers, trying to send money back to his family, and was hit by a car. Another case that really struck me was a 16-year-old who died when he fell out of an earth mover that he was driving. And to me, the idea that a 16-year-old would be in a position to be driving a 35-ton vehicle is just inconceivable. But this is what happens when you have kids working the jobs that, for almost a century, they've been specifically prohibited from being in. I want to bring uh, Greg Chen into this conversation. Hannah Dreyer, who we're talking to, is the Pulitzer Prize-winning New York Times reporter who did this just jaw-dropping expose, alone and exploited. Gregory Chen is the um, senior director of government relations for the American Immigration Lawyers Association. Can you talk about, legally, what recourse these children have? Thank you so much for having me on the show here. And this is an extremely challenging situation. And when you use the word legally, 
what recourse these children have. The first thing that comes to mind for me as a practicing lawyer uh, who represented children back in the 1990s in San Francisco is that children don't have any knowledge or understanding of what their legal rights are. Uh, many of these children who are coming from different countries that have very limited English speaking capacity or skills, and they simply won't understand that uh, there is a legal system of labor laws to protect them. Um, and they are also afraid that their immigration status here in the United States is going to be in jeopardy if they report any such violations. I wanted to ask you in terms of the response of the of, of the Biden administration, this is certainly one of the fastest responses by a government agency to an expose that that I can recall. Uh, your sense of what some of the uh, the proposals are uh, of the Biden administration to address this issue. Uh, so uh, the announcements by the Biden administration uh, are laudable in terms of the speed that they've implemented them or that's been announced them. Uh, by and large, what they're talking about here is increasing Department of Labor and Health and Human Services investigations of these kinds of situations and also improving uh, the screening and vetting of families that might sponsor these children, uh, usually relatives who are going to take care of the children after they are released from government custody, which happens when they first arrive. Uh, and then in addition, after these children are released, what kinds of post-release services are going to be given to these children to make sure to check on them uh, so that after a month or three months, you know, are they still living there? What is their health situation? Are they going to school? Uh, those are all steps that the federal government uh, has announced they will be doing more of uh, because they haven't been able to check on all these families. What is missing here, uh, and this is very important given the fact that, as Hannah described, and what we're seeing statistically is that the number of children coming to the United States, particularly from Central American countries, has increased dramatically. Uh, from about 10 years ago, we had 13, 14,000 children coming every year. Now we are looking at 130,000 children that came just last year. And these are children who are fleeing persecution, violence, and poverty. Uh, and many of them are afraid to come to the United States uh, because of the challenges across the border and because the United States has made it much more difficult to seek asylum. And when they get here, if they don't have stable humanitarian legal relief, such as asylum, uh, they're going to be afraid to report anything bad that happens to them while here in the U.S., including labor violations. Uh, so what the Department of Homeland Security needs to do and the Biden administration need to do is to look at more ways of ensuring asylum access and humanitarian protection for children and for other people who are coming here seeking protection. And just briefly, because we have less than a minute on this segment, but I wanted to ask you in terms of the uh, of the penalties that employers or the staffing agencies face. Uh, uh, just uh, last week, the Department of Labor found a company called Packer Sanitation Services guilty of uh, having 102 children as young as 13 years old working across eight states that had only got a one and a half million dollar fine for that. Yeah, so the, the important thing here is that we need more resources put into investigations uh, to ensure that uh, fines and any other penalties can be imposed uh, and that Congress should be looking at this from a labor perspective. Uh, but I would also urge Congress to look at reforming our U.S. asylum laws and our U.S. immigration system overall. The fact is that the asylum system is closing. It's becoming more restrictive, uh, both because of congressional pressure and because the Biden administration uh, is 
putting more blocks on asylum seekers being able to come here. And we haven't had Congress reform our humanitarian or our family or employment-based visa system in three decades now. That's 30 years where people who are coming here don't have the pathways needed to have a safe, stable life here in the United States. And we have thousands, millions of people who are living here, including children, who are in that tenuous status. Anybody who is in a tenuous status that doesn't have permanent legal status is going to be fearful of reporting labor violations like this. And that vulnerable second-class population in the United States is not something that's healthy for the country, even as immigrants contribute so much to our society, our communities, and our economy. Well, we want to thank you both so much for being with us. Gregory Chen with the American Immigration Lawyers Association and Hannah Dreyer for your superb uh, expose in The New York Times. We'll link to your piece, Alone and Exploited. And just to read a few lines from that piece to underscore, when when HHS checks on all minors by calling them a month after they begin living with their sponsors, data obtained by the Times showed over the last two years, the agency could not reach more than 85,000 children. Overall, the agency lost immediate contact with a third of migrant children. Next up, we look at how Brazil's new president, Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva, could play a key role in peace talks to end the war in Ukraine. We'll speak with his foreign policy advisor, Celso Amarim. Stay with us. Abarca do Sol. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez as we turn to look at how Brazil's new president, Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva, could play a key effort in peace talks to end the war in Ukraine. China's also sought to mediate negotiations in recent weeks and months, and Lula is set to meet with the Chinese President Xi Jinping at the end of March. When Lula met with German Chancellor Olaf Scholz at the end of January, he said Brazil will work with other nations to help achieve peace in Ukraine, as his country has not taken sides. My suggestion is that we form a group of countries that will sit at the table with Ukraine and Russia to try to find peace, to try to stop the war. Brazil will make an effort. I already spoke with Macron. I spoke with Schultz. I will speak with other presidents, the United States with President Biden. Then I will find other presidents to talk to about the idea of creating a group of people, institutional, multilateral, G20, G10, G15, to sit down and find peace because the world needs peace. Just two weeks ago, Lula was in the United States to meet with President Biden, who's pushed Brazil to send weapons to Ukraine. Lula says he told Biden, quote, I don't want to join the war. I want to end the war. Lula spoke on CNN. 
What I believe is that in the case of Ukraine and Russia, it is necessary to have someone talking about peace. It's necessary that we should build up interlocutors to talk with the different parties that are in confrontation. That's my thesis. We need to find interlocutors that could sit with President Putin and show to him the mistake that he made to invade the territorial integrity of the Ukrainian territory. And we have to show to Ukraine that they have to talk more so that we can avoid this war. We have to stop the war. Lula was speaking to Christian Amanpour. He told Biden he would not sell weapons or ammunition to Ukraine. After Lula's remarks, White House National Security spokesperson John Kirby was asked to respond in a follow-up interview on CNN. We don't see any... uh any impetus right now to get to the negotiating table. So that's why we are focused on making sure Ukraine has everything they need to be successful on the battlefield so that if and when President Zelensky says, I'm ready to sit down, he can do so uh, with some wind at his back. The whole issue at stake in Ukraine, when you get right down to it, is about sovereignty. It's about independence. And how ironic, how hypocritical would it be for the United States uh, in that sort of a frame to be browbeating or trying to you know, tussle other countries to give more, do more, say more? This comes as Russia's deputy foreign minister told the Russian news service TASS last week that Moscow took note of Lula's comments, quote, on the subject of possible mediation in order to find political ways to prevent escalation in Ukraine, correcting miscalculations in the field of international security on the basis of multilateralism and considering the interests of all players, he said. For more, we go to the capital of Brazil, Brasilia, to speak with Celso Amarim, the foreign affairs advisor for Brazil's president, Luis Inácio Lula da Silva. He previously served as Brazil's foreign minister under Lula. Amarim also served as defense minister under former President Dilma Rousseff. We welcome you back to Democracy Now! It's great to have you with us. Can you start off by talking about the significance of what Lula told Biden about not selling weapons to um, to Ukraine and the possibility of Lula serving as some kind of mediator, Salso Amari. Well, I think, uh, well, good morning or good afternoon. Uh, good morning, I believe, there in, in the United States, uh, the East Coast. Uh, I think the, the, the real point is that uh, we don't want to be part of the war. And of course, if you provide uh, ammunition, or actually, we were asked to do that by Germany rather than the United States. Uh, but if we if, if we provide ammunition, we'll be participating in a war, uh, something that we don't want. That's contrary to our uh, general view in relation to the favoring peace and peaceful means of resolving uh, conflicts. Uh, Well, that does not mean that we don't condemn the actions of Russia invading Ukraine, uh, violating its territorial integrity and violating norms of the United Nations Charter. But we think that we must talk about peace. That's absolutely necessary, because if you only talk how to defeat defeat Russia, how to enfeeble or weaken Russia, that will not come to, to, to a positive conclusion. I think the war will continue. We'll have... Uh, you'll have certainly a resentful Russia, whoever is the leader, and I think that that doesn't bode well for peace in Europe or in the world. Uh, I wanted to ask you, it's uh, not only Brazil, but most of the countries in Latin America have maintained a neutrality and refused to 
uh, to provide weapons to Ukraine. Uh, uh, there's been some criticism of some of the countries, but not all. Why do you think that uh, Latin America has charted such a different course uh, on this war? Well, I, to start with, we didn't actually even try to coordinate. That was a spontaneous attitude in relation to war. We are a region of peace. We won't, by the way, not only Latin America, but South America and the South Atlantic to be a region of peace. So we, this is not a, a war in which we are involved, which does not mean that we don't condemn the actions by Russia. I, I want to stress that once again. But we, I think more important than condemning or not condemning or trying to weaken Russia or to defeat Russia is to find a way towards peace. That's what we have to do. And nobody was talking about that. We are glad that now some other people are talking, like the Chinese, some others are talking, great intellectuals like Jürgen Habermas in, in Europe. Of course, Pope Francis had done that before. But we want to find a way. Uh, maybe it's not immediately uh, the, 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 the durable peace we want, but sometime, some sort of ceasefire or armistice that can then allow us to get to a, a peaceful solution to the conflicts which are there, I mean, and whose deep causes are, 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 are multiple. There have been uh, other efforts uh, in recent months uh, to find a, to mediate a solution. Uh, for instance, a former Prime Minister Naftali Bennett of Israel has said he was involved and he thought there was a potential deal last year, but th that it was the United States that he believed did not want the war to end at that time. Why do you think that there might be greater success uh, now uh, in the efforts of, uh, of, of Lula? Well, I cannot be sure that there will be greater success, but we have to try. We never, we can't give up. We can't give up on peace. You know, this is a very dangerous situation. You are in the in the geopolitical center of the world. Uh, you may, even if people declare that they are not going to use this or that kind of weapon, we can never abso be absolutely sure that this will not happen. And so, uh, and apart from that, uh, thousands and thousands of people are dying. Uh, and there is a crisis in the world in terms of of uh, food crisis. There is a, uh, there is a, the prices of energy are, are affecting, uh, especially us, the developing world. I mean, for many countries, there are alternatives. For developing countries, if you don't if you don't have enough to eat, you won't find it somewhere else. So, uh, for us, it's absolutely necessary to get uh, to get peace, and that's. That's why President Lula is speaking. It's not, there's no magic formula, but if you have to, you have to talk. If you, instead of just thinking of more weapons, more more uh, greater force, you won't find any solution. You know, I, I learned with Kofi Annan, who was the Secretary General of the United Nations. You have to talk to everyone, including your adversaries. If you don't talk your, with your adversaries, the only thing that you have in front of you is conflict, is war. Uh, death, and we don't want that. Celso Amarim, I wanted to ask you about a new movement now, um, of, over the last year, uh, but very recently, 
to go after Putin, not only for crimes against humanity and war crimes, but specifically for um, engaging in war as an act of an aggression. Now, this is very interesting movement. Um, interestingly, the United States is not a signatory to the International Criminal Court, as Russia isn't either, Britain isn't either. And while it looks like they're pushing for this in the case of Russia attacking Ukraine, they are not pushing for this as a general category, um, finding leaders guilty of war as an act of aggression. Now, you were the foreign minister under Lula in 2003 when the U.S. invaded Iraq under President Bush. You were fiercely opposed. Lula was opposed to that invasion. What about this um, category, uh, investigating Putin for this, but also what it means for, for example, U.S. leaders? Well, you know, uh, I think if you look for indictment of all the leaders who have started wars that they have, shouldn't have indicted, maybe you wouldn't be able to talk to anyone. I think the most important thing now, I don't want to go into the merits the specific merits of the possible indictment of one or this or that leader. I think the question is, is now being able to talk to them and to find a way in which a solution, which will not be an ideal one for anyone. Uh, of course, I agree uh, with those that say that uh, uh, Russia cannot be rewarded for having initiated uh, the war. On the other hand, of course, there are other deep causes that have to be looked at if you want to have a durable peace. But the most important thing is where your efforts are directed. If your efforts are directed to war, to combat, to, 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 dis, to destroy or at least to, to weaken your enemy, or if your efforts are directed to fight as soon as possible uh, conditions for peace, which may imply initially some sort of ceasefire, some sort of armistice, so that the deeper questions, this was done in the past. Unfortunately, they, I'm not going to the merits now, but the Minsk agreements, which somehow had, were some, some basis for a conviviality, if not a good one, but at least some coexistence, better said, between Russia and Ukraine, was, were not, not followed, not respected. Well, there are, there are uh, accusations on one side or another, but whatever it is, we have to be in search of peace. If we are just in search of war, of defeating your enemy, or indicting or fighting a criminal, a criminal, um, uh, a criminal person uh, or a criminal leader, you won't find anywhere. We condemned, of course, the war in Iraq, but we never thought we should uh, bring uh, uh, former President Bush to the International Cri Criminal Court. You know, you know, these are different things. You are now dealing with a they need to find a peaceful solution for the world. I mean, moral judgments are very important. I don't, I'm not claiming that they should be out. But, but the most important thing now is to find a peace that is just, that doesn't reward wrong actions, but which still can help the countries to live there. Because, you know, they, it's geography. They will be there. Russia will be a neighbor of Ukraine, whatever they like it or not. So we have to find a way for them to live to, to live as 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 well as possible.
week, Brazil joined the vast majority of the countries in the world on the first anniversary of Russia's invasion in condemning Russia for the invasion. You know, countries like China, um, South Africa and others abstained from that vote. Um, so what would that possible agreement, as you're talking about, what would a peace agreement, what could you see it looking like? Well, I think at this point, as you remember, you voted in favor, but we also made a declarational vote in which we insisted that on the point that nothing should be used to prevent negotiations from starting and going on. Uh, well, I, I have, I have, and President Lula, of course, has uh, several specific ideas, but I think rather than putting them publicly at this stage, we would like to talk to all those involved to see where the resistances are. What is the what is the bottom line, the real bottom line line for each side? I mean, otherwise you go into a rhetoric debate, and the positions get harder and harder, and uh, and the negotiation gets more difficult. That was my experience as a trade negotiator. That was my experience when I also tried to be involved in other negotiations of a political nature. That was the experience that President Lula had. So uh, I think the most important thing is to have an idea how, how we can at least stop the fighting, stop the killing, and then, of course, move into a, to the conditions for a more durable peace. But we can't do that publicly. It's impossible, because otherwise everyone feels obliged uh, towards their own public opinion to, be, to have maximalist positions. Uh, I wanted to ask you, next month, uh, President Lula will be uh, a meeting with Chinese leader Xi Jinping at, at, uh, at the end of, of March. Uh, China is Brazil's number one trading partner, uh, and China has also recently put forth a 12-point peace plan. Uh, uh, what do you think will be the main issues being discussed between Brazil and China, and what is your sense of uh, the Chinese peace plan? two different aspects there. I mean, of course, there will be a lot to be discussed on trade, investment, technology, environment, and so on. But let us put that aside uh, and for a moment. Uh, in relation to the peace plan, of, of course, there is the peace plan by China. There is a peace plan by by Ukraine also that we received one or two months ago. Uh, uh, we want to discuss there are positive points there, I mean, like the respect for sovereignty, the, the, the renunciation to the use of uh, weapons of mass destruction, all this is positive. Uh, but of course, we have to go further than that. But China is a fundamental actor because in all kinds of negotiations of this sort, uh, you need you need people who have talk and who, who are able to have influence on either side. I mean, the United States and France and Germany, of course, have a natural influence on Ukraine. But you have to have countries also that have influence on Russia. And China certainly would be one of them. So uh, we would like to discuss with them, to know how much they have discussed with the Russians, and, of course, to expose our own ideas. But China is, of course, a very important partner for Brazil. That does not mean that you'll have to agree with China on everything. Uh, uh, for a long time, the United States was the greatest, the biggest uh, uh, trading partner in Brazil, and still we disagreed on some points. I mean, we are, uh, we tend to work independently. Uh, that is the Brazilian tradition. Uh, and in, in terms of um, the, uh, 
the uh, Russian uh, Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov visited Pretoria last month, and South Africa is currently hosting Russia and uh, and China for naval military exercises. Uh, South Africa has a long history with Russia and a troubled one with the United States. Uh, how does the, this history shape the alignments of the country today, if at all? Well, I think it, it is important to note. The other day I heard also the vice minister or the minister, I'm not sure, of Uganda uh, saying similar things about Europe. And uh, they, when they were under colonial rule, it was the Soviet Union that helped them, not, not other countries. But now we have a different situation. And I think we have to, 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 to look for a peaceful world, a multipolar world which, in which the rules of the United Nations will be followed. I mean, I, I for, for one, am very much in, in defense. Of, of course, we need also a reform of the United Nations. That's very important. But we want, we want the charter of the United Nations and international law to be respected. So that means that we cannot condone with the invasion of Russia, whatever the motives they have, that's another question. But you have to, to seek your objectives in a peaceful way, in a way that it, uh, privileges dialogue, privileges we have five conversation. Seconds. Sorry? We have five seconds. Uh, so, so, Amarim, I want to thank you for being with us. We're also going to have an interview with you in Spanish and post it on our Spanish website at democracynow.org. Celso Amarim, foreign affairs advisor to Brazil's President Lula. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez.